You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The EU guarantees support to Ukraine as Hungary buckles. Australia and New Zealand remind each other that a world of trouble is not so far away. And do we really need lessons in modern sensitivity etiquette? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Lizette Raymer and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from Monocle's team at the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Yasmin Abdul-Majid, Sudanese Australian broadcaster and author, and by Lizette Raymer, Europe correspondent at News Hub of New Zealand. Welcome both to the South Seas takeover of the Monocle <laughs> Daily. Pleasure to be here. We, we've done it. We've taken charge. It's the ultimate dream. I know. Yeah. Can... Where are the submarines? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will be coming to that later in the show. Um, Yasmin, first of all, we were discussing earlier uh, in the waiting room your your upcoming travel plans? Yes, so I have my first ever trip to Lahore, which is in Pakistan, for a friend's wedding that I'm, I'm slightly nervous about because they, in the sort of prep email, they, she, my friend sent the list of the outfits and all the colour-coordinated sort of options. Um, so I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be taking two months' worth of clothing for a 10-day trip. Are, are you sure this is all entirely necessary? You're not being subjected to some sort of hazing here? I mean... Whether or not I am being subjected, I feel like I feel like it will be necessary. I feel like I will turn up and aunties will look down their noses if I'm not in the correct shade of mauve. See, honestly, the reason I ask is that I, I went to a wedding in Kolkata many, many years ago for which I was gleefully suited up in suitably formal local Indian style wear by my Beautiful. friends who had invited me. And of course, I get there and I'm the only idiot dressed up like basically Justin Trudeau and every actual Bengali Amazing. man there. Is just wearing a suit and tie and thinking, who brought this idiot? I, I mean, I did see it coming from a way off, but just decided to let them have their they fun. They dined on that story for, for years, uh, oh, I'm certain. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, Lizette, you have recently been travelling in Europe, as befits your job. Yes, doing my best to get around at the start of the year. I've been to The Hague for the ICG court case, uh, which was really full on and a lot of noise being made outside Mm -hmm. and inside and then also snuck to Copenhagen for the coronation, not coronation because that's not what they call it, of the king um, which was a very, very different experience to a British coronation. I would think, I mean, I did want to ask about that particular thing because that story has been obviously a massive whoop in Australia because the Queen is Danish or no, the Queen of Denmark is now I used to know how this language went. The Queen of Denmark is in fact Australian. Yes, well, it will not surprise you to hear that New Zealand is very happy to claim her as close enough. <laughs> is this, this isn't going to become the whole Pavlova thing. I think it might be again, a little tinge of that. <sighs> okay, well, we will be returning. The Danes were giving it to us, to be fair. Were they? They were supportive of it. Uh, really? Sorry. Okay. In that case, Australia has to fall back on, in this regard, Queen Susan of the Albanians, um, the the wife of the son of King Zog. They were never... They were. 
they were a royal family in exile, but but we're having it. Um, we may have drifted from the point somewhat. <laughs> um, we will be returning to more focused discussion of the day's events later in the show. But first, we are heading to Denmark, uh, where Lizette has just been, where Monocle has descended upon the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair. I am joined from there by Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, and by the design editor, Nick Moniz. Um, Tom, I will ask you, first of all, as one of the very, very few non-Antipodean voices we're going to hear on this programme, what are you and Nick actually doing there? We are actually right now live in a pop-up radio booth. Now, it looks exactly like the cafe on uh, Chilton Street in London. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's got glass all the way around. And actually, through the glass right now, we're sitting. We're seeing a lady sitting on a man's lap. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a very cosy place to be indeed. Now, we've been broadcasting live throughout the day, and we've been making podcasts, including a very special monocle on design in partnership with SIF, which is the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair, that is taking place in the Bella Centre until tomorrow. And we've been here all week and we've had all sorts come through our doors over the past few days. Uh, On which subject, Nick Manise, welcome to the South Seas takeover of the Monocle Daily. Uh, Who has been been popping into the pop-up? I mean, firstly, great to hear the double use of the word pop there. I don't know, Andrew, I'm, to be honest, I'm very, very tired. We've had a lot of people come through, but it has been sensational. I mean, uh, we've had uh, representatives from Soulland, from Marameco, uh, from uh, what was that sensational brand, Tom, that you had in earlier, the, the uh, French... Swiss one. Holistic. So Dave is the SM. He's been listening to all of our interviews and he remembered. Holistic, beautiful designer and a beautiful person. And we took some pictures of her as well. So look out for that. I mean, it really, it really is. And David, thank you. For, thank you for bailing me out. I've actually now just pulled up uh, the list of the people that we have spoken to. And genuinely, it is a, a who's who of Danish design. And we've got as I mentioned, Silas Adler from uh, Soland, Nicola and Dieter from Gani. Uh, we've got the team behind by Malene Berger. Uh, there's Cecily Banson coming through the studio as well. Stina Goya. It's it really is a, a sensational lineup, and uh, I, I think that's the beauty of being here. Um, it, it, it's the fact that this really is a hub uh, of obviously global talent and people coming in and showing their wares, but it's also, uh, or, or, or rather, their garments. I'm so used to talking about furniture fairs and furniture wares. Um, uh, uh, but garments that you can actually wear. So yes, it is a global event, but it, it is also yeah packed with packed with uh, Danish talent, and, and really that's what this has felt a little bit like. It is it is really a celebration of of the role that Denmark plays in. Uh, the global creative scene and and, uh, as a benchmark for a creative economy. Uh, And Tom, when you have not all been heroically manning your post there, have there been exciting after-hours soirees? There is tonight. It's the official party of the event, and it's taking place on a Thursday midweek, which means Friday is going to be very interesting for everyone. 2,000 people are turning up. It's a dinner, and it's live music the very special dinner that happened yesterday was without Nick Manise. It was with me and Natalie and Dave. And we went out for dinner after we went for a sauna and a dip in the sea. And because of which, we've all woken up with strange cuts and bruises because the sea numbed us and we seem to have smashed our way around the sauna. So it's a very strange picture I'm painting for you. I mean, I, I, I'll jump in. So I, I did. I was invited. I just want that to be on the record. I, I wasn't <laughs> deliberately left out. Um, but I, I did go to a uh, fashion party. Obviously, I have to do some work. 
work it's a given I'm just seriously oh yeah sure I'll drink 10 beers with you um like that that's the sort of energy I'm bringing but I went to a, a party with Solan last night um and and again it, it it's it really is as as much as it is about having a good time it is also about forging connections here uh, not just spending time in the sauna I, I guess what I'm trying to emphasize is that I've been on the clock uh, for a very very long time but where I am going with this very unusual set, uh, but where I am going, I do know now, it's the fact that it, it brought together not just fashion designers, but architects, uh, graphic designers, uh, ad directors. And I think, I think again, uh, yeah, whilst we're, we're also producing, you know, some great interviews and, and, and sharing some great perspectives, it's also a chance for people to come together and cross-pollinate, as it were, Andrew. Uh, very much, as it were. Uh, and Tom, just finally, it says here that I am to ask you where is next for Monocle's travelling pop-up? Very, very good question. We are going to stay here until Friday. We've got Sophie Dolver, who is running the show. She's going to join us here on the programme. We've also got CDLP, wonderful fashion brand, men's fashion brands. Apparently, they're going to measure our waists and maybe sell us some swimwear. They also sell jock straps that I twanged as I walked past. In terms of where we go next, Nick, it's Salone, surely. It is Salone, surely. Uh, yeah, we've, we've got an amazing uh, pop-up studio that we're currently in the process of designing with the House of Switzerland uh, in uh, Brera, the heart of Milan Design Week and, and Salone del Mobile. Uh, and then we'll also be hosting a series of talks uh, and, and the live radio shows in partnership with the Bezug in the run-up to that. So lots of live monocle radio on the cards. Well, I shall allow you all to return to your jockstrap twanging. Nick Manise and Tom Webb, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Lizette Raymer and Yasmin Abdul-Majid. And we will look now at what appears to have been a good day for Ukraine, an awkward one for Hungary, and for both of those reasons, an extremely amusing one for Poland. The EU agreed a support package worth 50 billion euros for Ukraine after Hungary's hitherto obstructive Prime Minister Viktor Orban, as he very often does, folded at the last possible moment. Poland's recently reinstalled Prime Minister Donald Tusk was other than magnanimous in victory, saying that Europe's problem was not Ukraine fatigue, but Orban fatigue. Meanwhile, Ukraine claimed to have sunk overnight the Russian-guided missile corvette Ivanovets in a drone strike. Um, Lizette, as regular listeners will be aware, you have dipped in and out of Ukraine these last couple of years. Um, This is quite a big reassurance for them, isn't it? It's not the one they want most, which is the one from the United States, but 50 billion euros is literally no small change. Welcome relief, absolutely. Absolutely, just to know that there is continued support. Absolutely, I think it is a growing concern that that money from the US is being held up. Mm. This is a, a tip in the right direction. And as you say, it's not small chump change. It's a significant contribution and it will go a long way. There have been... Uh, there's been progress made by the Russians on the battlefield in recent months and... It's no secret that Russia is producing weapons and ammunition a lot faster than Ukraine can get its hands on it at the moment. So the international support is not just 
vital in terms of actually getting what they need in country to continue to fight, but also psychologically for those soldiers who are in the trenches and have been now for two years, for the families and the residents of Ukraine who are still living with a lot of fear and feel perhaps maybe a little bit forgotten at the moment because of how much focus there is on Israel and Gaza. So this is a significant step. It will be very, very welcomed, and it has been already by President Zelensky. Yes, I mean, is it clear, well, one might ask, is it ever clear what Viktor Orban thought he was doing up until this point? He was, Again, uh, Donald Tusk's quite lengthy disquisition on the subject of Viktor Orban is worth returning to. Uh, he said that Orban had been playing a strange egoistic game. I, I do love when we sort of hear people's, what they really think kind of thing. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting to consider what Orban um, is trying to do more generally. I mean, he sort of acts like the belligerent family member where you, you have to get consensus and he's constantly, even just for the sake of it. And he has a very different idea of, of what Europe should be. And and there maybe was a sense when, you know, when things were different in Poland that maybe there was some, like, momentum in that direction. But I think he definitely is a little, is more isolated at the moment. But it doesn't seem that he's changing his tactics. And and. W- I'm curious about what sort of got him over the line. Was it the threat of him being uh, hungry, being having voting rights removed? Was it the threat of economic support being removed? I mean, these are all kind of nuclear options, and it's very unlikely that any of the European nations really wanted to to take those actions to sort of strong arm um, Orbán into into conceding. But clearly, um, he's keeps pushing right right until the last sort of the 11th hour, as it were, um, how long he can continue to do this and, and how much as you know, the Orban problem continues. Yeah, Lizette, I don't want to talk about Orban too much, <laughs> mostly because I rather suspect that's exactly what, what he, he wants. Yeah. But to look further at Yasmin's point about the change of government in Poland, he is much more isolated now, isn't he? Because there was the conventional wisdom, and I'm sure we made at least one episode of the Foreign Desk to that effect, that Poland and Hungary were the two problem children. But Poland is a big country. It's an important country. It is an economically, militarily, strategically significant country that if you don't like the people in charge, well, tough. You kind of have to figure out how to work with them. Hungary, not so much. No, totally. And I think a lot has been said about Orban just simply wanting to project this idea that there isn't complete unity in the West or in the EU, in those member states, trying to really show that there are cracks and that appealing to Putin and appealing to what then Putin can project to the people of Russia and with his news broadcasts and what, oh look what trouble's being stirred up in the EU at the moment. But what I think is quite interesting about this is you've got the likes of Poland coming out and just calling it for what it is and saying actually we don't have a lack of unity. We 26 are very well aligned. We are as strong as ever and you're just annoying us but we're going to get our way anyway. And your point actually now looks a bit stupid. Um, yes, I mean, Lizette was talking about the boost this will be for Ukraine's morale, especially as they near the, the second anniversary of certainly this phase uh, of Russia's attack on the country. Is there a symbolic significance to this beyond the 50 billion euros, which, again, to reinforce, is not a small amount of money. Is there a signal here as well that the EU is sending, not just to Ukraine, but to Russia as well, that the EU is where Ukraine is going to end up? 
I believe so. I think it, it's it's difficult to imagine that it's anything else other than, you know, a big show of support. It's probably the best show of support that the EU could provide in this moment. Obviously, with, um, as Lizette mentioned, the, the sort of world's attention elsewhere um, in Israel and Gaza and in the Red Sea. And, and, and I think that there probably has been a sense um, that Will Ukraine kind of be left behind? Will this kind of idea of Europe under threat be something that is ignored or, or no longer on the front um, of, of Europe's agenda, especially with elections coming up in May and so on? So I, I think that definitely Ukrainians will be feeling that sense of support. But also it's this broader question of how is it going to be interpreted in Russia? What is that, you know What are the kind of implications beyond that? Um, is Europe going to sort of be, regardless of what happens in the United States, the like the united in the bulwark? Um, perhaps so. Well, let's look now at the Antipodes, where the Foreign and Defence Ministers of Australia and New Zealand have met in Melbourne to inaugurate a new regular confab called, unsurprisingly, the Australia-New Zealand Foreign and Defence Ministers Consultations, which will be abbreviated, mercifully, as ANSMIN. Though the two countries generally do get on pretty well, give or take New Zealand's reluctance to get over one or two things which have occurred on cricket fields, they have recently differed somewhat over defence matters, especially after Australia joined the AUKUS Pact with Britain and the United States in 2021. Um, There has been a change of government in New Zealand since then. Does the new outfit in charge actually quite fancy some of this? Absolutely they do, and they've made that very clear. Yeah, I mean, everything in New Zealand is changing at the moment. There's a very different direction from the new government. There are some old faces who are now back in those positions. Mm -hmm. Our foreign minister and our defence minister have been around for a long time, and they have made it a priority to get straight to Australia and put out there that, yes, they would perhaps like to be part of the AUKUS deal. Now, it is with a huge caveat, and that is that we don't want anything to do with Pillar 1, as it's called, which is the submarines and the Mm -hmm. nuclear chat. New Zealand is so, 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 so proud of its nuclear-free stance and its history. That is not going to be compromised. That, 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 to be clear, is a pretty unshiftable, bipartisan fact of life, isn't it? And there is no way the new government would would pursue that. But this Pillar 2 is something that they have expressed this renewed interest in. And they've had their bilateral meetings, their conversations in the last 24 hours, and it's since been decided that the Australian government officials will now visit New Zealand and brief our government on on what could be put together in terms of joining that pact, what New Zealand actually has to offer, because I think at the moment New Zealand really needs to prove that we've got something to bring to that uh, agreement. But it, it is the most... Uh, aggressive, I guess, leaning towards joining the pact that we've seen so far. Yasmin, as we've just been discussing, the two countries have had their differences in in certain details, I guess, especially the attitude towards nuclear power of any kind. But do you ever feel like there's there's something fundamental uh, in terms of how the two countries see the world and the Pacific in particular? Do they look at it and perhaps even see themselves in different ways? Australia, I think, often uh, tends to think of itself as a big country because of the space we take up. Yeah, I think both countries have in common um, perhaps this idea that they, especially and maybe are returning to with with the Conservative government now in New Zealand, um, an attitude that is 
requiring security uh, from Asia rather than in Asia. I think mm. this is something that both of these countries have in common. And, and this is what I find quite interesting about this coming together. The language is, was around, let's have, we're going to have a seamless kind of defence and military. We're going to, the implication is that we'll train together, we'll, we'll be using similar equipment. We, there will almost be going back to a sort of ANZAC, like World War mm. One kind of mentality of the Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. And, and, and so I think this is quite interesting, especially with, with a context where the United States is saying, is looking at, um, looking at China, looking at Taiwan, looking at potential future strategic challenges in the area, and therefore much depending a lot more on both Australia and New Zealand. I think New Zealand's trying to sort of get involved so it doesn't lose out on what's going to happen. But also I th- I, there's this tension between Australia and New Zealand sort of facing more Anglo-European, you know, American when they have, you know, China and the Pacific on their doorstep. And this is and also the populations of these countries often are quite multicultural, are, you know, drawn from descendants Mm -hmm. of Chinese, Indian and uh, migrants and so on. So I do think it's a really uh, challenge. It's not straightforward at all. Uh, Lisette, is part of the purpose of ANZMIN possibly to hint to the populations of Australia and New Zealand that they need to start thinking about their defence more seriously? I mean, you'd never see the phrase ADF recruitment in the papers without the word crisis after it. Uh, The Royal New Zealand Navy uh, famously can't put about a third of its fleet in the water because they don't have enough sailors. Yeah, I think there's a real change in the air and these even just things I'm noticing with conversations that I'm having with people from home that in the past, you know, people have kind of almost disrespectfully laughed about our defence force and that like, oh, what do they even do? What are they up to? Sort of thing. But now there is a really new sense of, wow, this is really important that we get organised and that we're prepared. And I think also on a level, because it's something New Zealand so isn't used to and it's not conversations that we're used to having or taking seriously, there is this feeling of like, oh, but please can we have our friendship with Australia back? Because on an emotional level for people sitting at home, that's comforting to know that there's our our neighbours, our old pals are going <laughs> to be there for us no matter what. You know, that's how I think a lot of people are viewing that relationship mm. as well, that it is comforting to start with that. Well, actually, possibly, and I don't mean this to sound patronising to New Zealanders. Lizette, believe me, when I mean to sound patronising to New Zealanders, you'll know. Um, but but that, that same sort of elder sibling relationship. Is that kind of how Australia sees the United States, Yasmin? And the reason I'm asking about this is there are also these reports uh, that the United States is now stockpiling military Mm. equipment uh, in Australia in advance of possible eventualities. It kind of strikes me as honestly that it would be more surprising and even concerning if they weren't. But I, I, I don't know if this is actually going to necessarily discombobulate the Australian public much. I think, I mean, I think it would be giving Australia a little too much credit to call the relationship like an elder sibling. It's more like that cool cousin that you'll never actually <laughs> hang out with. Like you really want to be in that group, but, but like they don't really pay attention to you apart from maybe when they ask you to sort of like pick something up um, with your car. I think, I think I think, you know, America, the United States clearly recognises that they have a sort of very dependable uh, ally in the Mm. region. But but, but they're just, it's effectively they're going to leave stuff there as Mm. opposed to like we're going to rely on you strategically. We're we're going to use, I mean, 
That might change, though. It's how it might change is, I think, how Australia and New Zealand might respond to these changes and 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 um, demonstrate what value they can kind of offer beyond simply being a place where you can kind of set up. Uh, because both, I think, it, the United Kingdom is also involved in AUKUS. Like the United Kingdom is also not necessarily. Um, leading in being able to to hire or to attract army recruits and so on. So I think I think a lot of these nations are grappling with how to to think of the next challenge, strategic defense challenges 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Well, here in the United Kingdom meanwhile, it has emerged that since 2021 the government has spent 160,000 quid of our money hiring private sector consultants to train civil servants how not to commit the largely absent-minded minor discourtesies known in some quarters as microaggressions. For perspective, any government of any decent-sized country has almost certainly wasted more money than that since this programme started, but still, nice work if you can get it. Said microaggressions include, according to some of the lesson programmes, rolling one's eyes, the sceptical arching of eyebrows, or sneaking a look at a phone during conversation. Um, Lizette, I'm absolutely on board re-sneaking a look at phones during conversations. That's just not a thing people should do. I, I do have, I suspect, slightly boomerish views on this one. Uh, I'm going to put it to you, microaggressions, is there not a clue in the name? Microaggressions? Yeah. What do you mean? Is, as in micro. Does it, does it's a little add, bit add, small. Well, I was going to bring matter? up earlier when you referred to New Zealand as the younger sibling, or, yeah, well, and, and it, I felt was, that to be quite an aggressive yeah. microaggression. <laughs> And it wasn't even accompanied by a raised eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) Rolled eyes, though. Rolled eyes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty strange one to swallow, I think. Probably not something I would be spending that sort of coin on uh, Uh, myself. Is there, though, Yasmin, something to the idea that even if the small slights are not intentional or are just absent-minded, that as they accumulate, they can become somewhat wearing and debilitating? Yeah, I think, so the piece that, um, there was a piece in the Times that spoke about this, that they, I think they, the Times kind of did a whole bunch of uh, freedom of information requests and, and found this information and, and reported on it. To me, I read this piece and thought, God, what a bad faith piece this is. Because essentially, the argument is, how dare the government spend any money on trying to make um, the people from women and, and folks from marginalized mm-hmm. backgrounds in government a little bit more comfortable how dare they spend <laughs> money on how like god forbid because ultimately and yes when you sort of take them out and individualize them like a raising of the eyebrows or a rolling of the eyes like it seems ludicrous but similarly like one a doctor might say to you, you need to reduce stress you need to like slow down or you need to you know, the the constant like phone calls from your mother are increasing your your blood <laughs> pressure levels and and but ultimately, but we do know stress is a killer. Mm-hmm. We do know accumulation of stress does shorten people's lives by years. And similarly, I think, you know, although I might not sort of have an, have an argument with you about or defending every single microaggression, what I would say is that these tend to be like the, the sort of sharp end of a much broader structural or systemic issue, right? The, the kind of thing that leads to constantly having somebody feeling undermined is a system or a society or a workplace where certain people are not listened to or mm-hmm. certain people, are, because that comes from a broad societal, you know, uh, racist or, or sexist or misogynist environment. And I think that that is really what this is about. And I do, I, I would say that um, some, like, uh, consultants are 
you know, it is it is a kind of graph. Like there are some people that are <laughs> that are charging way too much for not that much value. However, um, the intention of how do we create a better workplace for 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 everybody? I think that's that's something that we should broadly support. But so I think like some like newsrooms. I've, I mean, I've only worked in newsrooms in my professional career, but like. If I was to get a consultant in, I wouldn't be telling them, hey, main priority is micro aggression. Right, 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 Mine right, would be right. like, main priority is aggression. It's like right. we're talking like sexism. Like, yeah. no, like, totally like, right. Let's just yeah. focus yeah, on yeah, racism yeah, 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 yeah. as yeah. an issue rather yeah. than like microaggressions that might indicate a broader see, racist... See, I, I, I do grant that I am the very definition of the kind of person who can... <laughs> who, who, who can who af- might actually... Who can afford to laugh this stuff off <laughs> because I realise that my ilk are not generally on the receiving end of this kind of thing. But is there a danger, and you did say, Yasmin, that that some of the people who are teaching these courses are kind of taking liberties, that this can become counterproductive, that you just you end up irritating people who are basically doing their best. Yeah, and I think something was that you just said, which is, is quite interesting, is that this is not, it's not a regulated space. There's no certification. There's no, you don't actually have to have any qualifications to go out and charge money to teach this <laughs> What stuff. are we all doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, don't mention it. Don't mention it. <laughs> but, and, 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 and unfortunately, when you sort of, when you approach things from a purely interpersonal, this is how you behave to each other viewpoint, that's nowhere near as effective as like, okay, what's at the core of this? Hey, maybe it's actually a system of racism and maybe it's actually a patriarch or whatever. But if you don't have that grounding in your education, then it's actually then something you can laugh off. Then it's something that you do, it does end up being counterproductive because people are like, this is, excuse my French, taking the piss. I'm, I don't want to engage with any of it. And then you've so lost true. people. It's like, oh, the woke brigade telling right. me I yeah, can't yeah, yeah. roll my eyes at her and it's like no 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 no. what you can't do is tell her that she's terrible at a job because she's female (laughs) right yeah 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 yeah. exactly yeah I mean, just as a final closing thought on this, Lizette, is there, and, you know, I think we're entitled to this one, given where we all come from, <laughs> is is there a danger that education of this sort might lead to British people having to say what they actually think? Yeah, or just something else to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> um, all complaints can be addressed to each of us individually. We won't read them. Uh, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Lizette Raymer, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's Daily, today's letter from is a letter from Vienna, here is Alexei Koryalov. It began last month and will go on to late March, Vienna's annual ball season. It is a big deal here. Almost every school, every club, every organisation, every city department, even the rubbish collectors, has a ball to its name. And that also includes the many international organisations based in the city from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe to the United Nations nuclear watchdog. Where else would you dance with a nuclear expert? The Austrian far-right like to shake a leg too at the so-called Academics Ball in the Hofburg Palace, invariably to the accompaniment of loud protests outside. But the highlight of the season is the Vienna Opera Ball. This year's edition will take place next week. Which reminds me... I've been reading the memoirs of Richard Bassett, a former Times correspondent in Central Europe. In the 1980s, when he was stationed in Vienna, foreign journalists were entitled to two free tickets to the Opera Ball. No such generosity these days, I'm afraid. Not that I would be interested. I have been once, on my own Euro, but I felt so ridiculous and self-conscious in a tailcoat, I can't remember anything, apart from feeling ridiculous and self-conscious. 
All that remains of that evening is a photograph of me standing awkwardly at the entrance to the ballroom. You can clearly see that I'm not enjoying myself. But there are plenty of people who do. Richard Bassett, the 1980s Times correspondent, for one. I quote, Is there a more intoxicating experience for a young man than dancing a Viennese waltz with an Austrian or Bavarian woman who knows how to guide, flirt and bewitch her partner, while all the time giving the impression that he is really in charge? This may sound like he's describing the 1880s, not the 1980s, but that's tradition for you. And Bassett also talks about another important aspect of this tradition. For centuries, balls have been a place for gossip and the exchange of information, and occasionally, as at the Congress of Vienna of 1814-1815, the remaking of Europe. Bassett used this to great effect in his work, meeting many of his contacts on the dance floor. So maybe, maybe I should go again. Cold War journalists may have gotten to the balls for free, but surely they had to pay for other things. And when they did, they did so in shillings, Austria's national currency before the euro. According to a report from the Austrian National Bank, there are still around 6.8 billion shillings in the country, the equivalent of just over 497 million euros. This is partly due to nostalgia, but mostly it's because of another human trait, forgetfulness. Let me quote Anton Schautzer, deputy head of the bank's banknote and coin department. We often hear that people have hidden money and then can't find it for a long time. At some point they do find it and exchange it with us. The places they find it include mattresses, basements, wardrobes and glove compartments of old cars. The good news is that the National Bank will continue to exchange shillings indefinitely. So just as with the balls, there seems to be no end date on that particular piece of the past. So let's waltz and spend our shillings. Thank you, Alexi. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Lizette Raymer, also to Tom Webb and Nick Manise at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening.